Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. I'm getting to the point now where I can get into almost any system on the internet. I virtually raped the internet beyond belief. Of course, the first thing to start with was all the military systems. That's Melbourne hacker, Phoenix. A hacker who had caught the attention of the US Secret Service. The US Secret Service then passed his name on to the Australian Federal Police to investigate. He was getting quite the reputation. And from here, the AFP went on to uncover a hacking group called The Realm. Hacking groups were springing up around the world, some gaining international attention. Chaos Computer Club in Germany and Legion of Doom in the US were two of the most notorious. More on those groups later. And members of both these groups were communicating with the realm. In Australia, hackers were generally one step ahead of the authorities trying to catch them. And while the hackers were discovering new ways to get around online, the police were learning how to chase them. This online world was as new to authorities as it was to the curious, teenage, mostly boys. So you can see that? Yes, I can see that. Is that we're recording? One of the first people in Australia to start taking computer crime seriously was Bill Apro. Bill now lives in Hungary, where his family originally came from. So maybe just to begin with, can I just get you to introduce yourself and how you'd like to be introduced? Okay. well, let's use Bill. Everyone knows me as Bill. I grew up with William and also with Zoltan is my Hungarian name. Naturally, the federal police all the way through. Everyone knew me as Bill. He joined the Australian Federal Police in the early 80s and was assigned to Melbourne Airport. He once removed a man wearing a Hawaiian shirt from the tarmac who was trying to hitch a ride on a jumbo jet. Interesting work for some, but Bill yearned to investigate. He clearly remembers the day his boss, the Assistant Commissioner, called him into his office to discuss his future career. He called me into his office and he said, OK, you know, you want to put me somewhere. We've got drugs, we've got intel, we've got fraud area... And that's when I mentioned to him, I mean, my, where I really like, would have liked to have gone was intelligence. So I wanted access to computers. And the only area that had computers were what we call the computer services section. Sounds uninspiring, but Bill had a hunch there was a future in this. And at the end of the day, cut a long story short, I ended up in that area. In the late 1980s, there weren't many computers in the AFP offices. Which makes sense, there weren't many in people's homes either. However, computer courses were being offered at universities, and some of the best were right here in Melbourne. And some of the students, probably the smarter ones, were hooked. Chief scientist at the Asia-Pacific Network Information Centre, Jeff Houston, was teaching back then. Uh, Mike, it was an entirely sort of weird environment where... The first years, it was all a case of just, you know, here's a keyboard, you know, (laughs) tap here and a letter appears in front of you. Isn't it wonderful? But by second year, the novelty had worn off and and some of them were just bored. And when you get bored on a computer, you know, oh, I wonder if I can log in as you. I wonder if I can log in as the lecturer. I wonder if I can see your files. You know, there was a little bit of sort of overt acts out there that we thought were a bit naughty. But on the whole, you could haul them in. Um, throw a book at them or two. <laughs> if you managed to hit them, they'd stop. If you didn't, you'd have to do it again. But, you know, contained. But when we started making this internet stuff and all of a sudden 
electronic mail went worldwide in seconds. All of a sudden, ideas were shared. It wasn't just researchers and academics. You know, it was the bored 18 and 19-year-olds who were sharing their own deeds and exploits. And that was, for a young, adventurous, slightly bored teenager with a geek fascination, you know, the golden mother load. Because there was just a huge amount of information about how to log into various computers on the internet, their levels of security, lists of, of you know, usernames and passwords. And it was just flag planting happiness. I've been here, aren't I good? Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherload, a Ranieri & Co. original podcast. I'm Greg Muller, a journalist from Melbourne, Australia. Last episode, we looked at the wank worm, the computer worm which attacks NASA with an anti-nuclear message. It's now considered the first example of hacktivism. In this episode, we'll discover where it might have come from, the Melbourne hackers who were around at the time and the police officer who was determined to catch them. Loading episode three. Flag planting happiness. So I suppose you have to put this into context with what computers were like, because, you know, no such thing as mobile phones. Even the concept of a laptop would break your legs if you ever put it on your lap. PCs were just kind of hitting the streets as a common thing. And so a lot of the work was what we called mainframe computers, you know, computers that sat inside a dedicated room, false floor, air conditioning, yada, yada, yada. Now, these were not highly graphical things. This was all text-based. You, you know, found you're on your account and then you ran programs on that host machine. So the internet wasn't a thing. It was just like a, tele a telephone system, like the web. I'm like, that didn't exist until 91, 92. And, and in this moment, you know, there was experimentation and a frontier and exploring and no boundaries and no sense of I can't do it. And I don't think anyone understood at that moment what a unique convergence had just happened. University of Melbourne academic Sulet Dreyfus was an early IT journalist at the time and also part of the scene. She was fascinated by the goings-on in Melbourne. And that just suddenly opened up the world for a set of gifted kids from often sort of working class, middle class backgrounds who were weird in their classroom, weird in their school and their suburbs, who didn't fit in because they were super gifted. And suddenly they found this community of like-minded people um, who were curious like themselves, who didn't sleep like themselves, um, and who just wanted to continue exploring and I have to ask you too, where were the women? 
<laughs> um, there were women, but they were very low profile. Um, they weren't tending to be hackers themselves, although a number of them did develop quite sophisticated technical skills. The women tended to put them to better use by eventually going on to become sysadmins or network you know, engineers or whatever. It's just, I think part of the issue is, is that most of the women in this picture didn't have their ego wrapped up in it. And a lot of the boys did have their ego wrapped up in it. And so they had to be out front and center within their small community. I'm not saying publicly, although some of them obviously strove for public recognition. But that, that was something that really didn't plague the women. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a trend we see. <laughs> The other issue, which keeps coming up, is whether or not these boys were criminals or simply smart and curious. I don't think that their mindsets were particularly criminal compared to today's hacking world. I mean, really, the early underground in Australia was so innocent by today's standards. And yes, they were breaking into systems. Yes, it was unauthorised access. Yes, there was some pranking that went on, but by and large, they really didn't want to do damage to systems. They certainly had the capability to to hold systems to hostage, to demand ransom, and there was never any of that. That's just not how it worked. For those people who did this kind of behavior, if they had asked some of the people who were educators in the realm, we might very well have shared the material with them without them having to break in. I did with my students. US computer security expert Eugene Spafford. Did they make an attempt to get the information through legitimate means or not? And if they didn't, is not something that I find commendable. Because the other big motivation is, um, is the thrill, you know, the thrill of the chase. And if they asked for it and got it, then you take that away. There are a lot of thrills that endanger other people's property and safety that as a society, we don't tolerate because the people seeking the thrills either don't understand the consequences or will go back for bigger and bigger thrills and eventually cause some harm. I've, I've talked with investigators who've investigated arson and computer crime, and, and the two actually have some parallels in their study. And they found that some arsonists aren't satisfied with small fires, and they keep going back and setting bigger ones. Uh, until they're caught. And that's maybe something, it, it seems to fit for some people who were breaking into computer systems. It's fair to say Bill Apro saw the crime and not the curiosity. The exploring mind of a teenager didn't interest him. Bill was police, through and through. Sure, when Bill entered this new world of computers, he saw the bored teenagers, but he also saw other stuff going on. And it wasn't only credit card fraud. He saw guys infiltrating military systems, universities, research facilities. There was even talk of corporate blackmail and international espionage. For a cop, intent on investigating, this was, as Jeff Houston put it, the golden mother load. Were these hackers, were they explorers and pioneers or were they criminals or both? I would say all three. You used something very good. Um, They're researching, pioneering, and naturally on the criminal side. So I would say the majority, the majority really went in there, researched back then 
the the net and the telecommunication system and I would say of that oh maybe about five percent went on to the criminal side are they actually not just playing around in a computer are they actually accessing it if they could access a computer get in then that's when my eyes lit up As far as we know, the realm were active for just three months between January and March 1990. So who were they? What drove them? And what did they do? Life in this early community revolved around BBSs. And so there were a handful of BBSs around Melbourne where you would dial in and they might have anything between one and three or four or five lines in. And so you could be part of a hacking group like the Realm um, within a BBS community. The dial-up BBSs or bulletin boards were like the online chat rooms of today. The BBS communities typically came alive at night. Sometimes that was because the telephone line had to be commandeered from the rest of the household. And so the hacker would basically be taking phone line away from mum, dad and siblings plugging it in. And usually those groups were broken into communities by Russian doll-like innermost sanctums that would get smaller and smaller and more exclusive. The more you went in, the more you discovered there was some deeper layer that you hadn't had access to. It's the exclusive celebrities room in the back of the nightclub that you don't even know exists if you're not dressed the right way. Uh, so it, it was, but but it was good in a way because for the hackers, it allowed them to weed out the wheat from the chaff in terms of technical capability. So they weren't wasting their time with the newbies, but also it minimised risk for them. Within these hacker groups, there were friendships. They were talking most nights. I don't think that they were as close friendships based on emotional and other bonds so much as some shared interests and convenience. It was the quirky thing about this new computer world. You could chat to a guy for hours, for weeks on end, strategize, inspire and joke around and never know what they looked like. That doesn't seem so strange now, but in 1989, it was new. Indeed, they rarely used, and it's unclear if they all knew, each other's real names. The members of the realm were known by their handles, Phoenix, Electron and Nom. A couple of other guys, Force and Wizard, were also hanging around. They were good. Bill thinks they were some of the best in the world. Oh, top ten. I'd even say top five. No, I'll go as far as to say top three. I'm talking realm. I mean, I talk to Phoenix or Force or whoever, Electron, but talking the group, the realm, I mean, they had the expertise. When Bill started to look into this underground computer scene, he soon realised the hackers hung out on the bulletin boards. So that's where he headed. There was a bulletin board and all I was interested in was to see what kind of messages, what was the, the, the guts of the message. So what was inside the message? But Bill soon realised he was way behind. I mean, Phoenix categorically knew that police do not have the same knowledge as him. Okay, so the realm are up here and law enforcement are way down. And he needed to catch up. Uh, When I got into the computer services section, I started to look into this. This is getting pretty serious and we're going to have to go out and learn something. 
And so it was during this time I went to Monash Uni, so started my bachelor's in computer science. I've spoken to a number of AFP officers who worked in computer crime in the 80s and 90s. Most of them did not want to be recorded, but they all told a familiar story. The AFP didn't really take computer hacking seriously at the time, and they were hopelessly underfunded. One guy told me that if the court ordered assets to be seized following a prosecution, they would apply to get them allocated to their department. That's how we got some of our gear, he said. Another former AFP officer said he spent about 15% of his take-home salary on computer equipment and taught himself how to use it. There wasn't the interest and there wasn't the prestige in cybercrime like there is today. Another former officer told me that no one wanted to join the computer crime unit. He was even told that he'd ruin his career by going into computers. Drugs and fraud, that's where it's at, they told him. But when these Melbourne hackers started to get the attention of US authorities, pressure was put on Australia to do something about it. Okay, my name's Ken Hunt. I'm uh, retired now, but I used to be a detective superintendent with the Australian Federal Police in Victoria. And one of my areas of command was running the computer crime group. Ken was working with Bill and remembers the US trying to convince Australia to get some computer hacking laws in place because Melbourne hackers were drawing attention to themselves and getting a reputation with US law enforcement. This was a few months after the wankworm. At least three guys from Victoria, uh, Melbourne actually, and they were upsetting the Americans. And because of that, the Secret Service and I also think the FBI as well uh, got in touch with their powers-to-be who got in touch with Australia and uh, asked for them to be um, charged. We didn't have the legislation at the time and so new legislation was brought in to actually allow us to be able to go and charge these people. Bill Apro says he had a hard time convincing senior AFP officers that computer hacking was anything other than the mischievous pranks of bored teenagers. But it's not how the Americans saw it. They were only too keen to help their colleagues down under. And then the director of intelligence came to see me afterwards and he said to me that, you know, he said, you've got to, you've got to get this going. He said, what do you need? So we got together, we sat down, and I said to him, look, this is the equipment that I need. And I can tell you it was around million dollars and this was monday the morning we met and monday afternoon at ti branch where my room was they said you better come over here you got all these boxes in your room i went there and everything was there i got everything so the us was funding your operation oh definitely i mean look federal police had no resources for this The US Secret Service contacted the AFP on the 6th of December, 1988. They had some information they thought the AFP needed to know. They had two names, Dave Lissack, who actually wasn't a hacker, we'll learn more about who he is later, and Phoenix, a well-known Australian computer hacker who they claimed was responsible for accessing data stored at the Citibank Corporation in America. Within a few months, a dedicated investigation had been launched. Bill was now investigating the realm. Okay, in Operation Dabble, I was sergeant of uh, the intel area of computer crime. 
The first problem was there weren't any specific computer hacking laws in Australia, so until legislation was passed, police had to rely on the Telecommunications Act. If they're using anything, a telegraphic wire, and they commit an offence, then they can attach the computer damage to that offence. So what I would say is they cause damage at blah blah using a telecommunications uh, line or system and that was the only way we would, uh, when I first started uh, investigating or collecting intelligence, uh, this was what we were going to use. Bill knew about this elite Melbourne hacking group from hanging out on the bulletin boards. But as Sue Lett said, these BBSs were run by people who wouldn't just let anyone in. You had to earn your entry. It's the exclusive celebrities room in the back of the nightclub that you don't even know exists if you're not dressed the right way. So Bill had to dress up. He completed a computer degree at Monash Uni, specialising in C programming. And this, the letter C, became his online handle on the BBSs. At times, it seems this investigation was a personal duel between a hacker and a police officer. And it was competitive. Who had the better computer skills? Who would prevail? The hunter or the hunted? Bill Apro or Phoenix? The Realm were getting a reputation for being the best hackers in Australia, if not the world. Bill had his work cut out for him. He spent hours sitting in his car outside their houses. All night, he would watch through a long camera lens to see when they were on their computers. To be 100% sure that they're the ones hacking, I couldn't do this with Phoenix, because Phoenix lived in Caulfield, it's like townhouses. It was too obvious. I couldn't see his his rooms upstairs. So I had to use Electron for this. So Electron's talking to Phoenix, we're using that. Bill befriended a guy in the real world who was known online as Bullwinkle. He told Bill about the hacking. And another guy, sometimes called the SysOp or System Operator, also called Bill, ran the bulletin board. It was where the hackers with the handles Wizard, Force, Phoenix, Nom and Electron would meet. Bill Apro was starting to infiltrate the local hacking group. So the main source of information about what was really happening out there in the world which we call quasi the realm, which he had the realm, he's getting all the information from the realm and passing some of that information to me to prove that hacking exists. And this is where it all started from. He then befriended the hacker called Force, gradually getting closer to the centre and to Phoenix and Electron. You know when they say you're only five degrees away from anyone? Well, my, my degree, so close, I've got Force, we've got Bill the SysOp, and they're both next to Phoenix. Because the only information I had, we had a file from our fraud fraud section that someone was um, accessing the credit cards, you know, from Citibank. And the value uh, Citibank placed on this area of access was 41 mil that they could access. And Phoenix popped up. For Bill, it began here, with credit card fraud. Correct. Correct. Well, it's still hacking as per se. I mean, I wanted to use that as hacking and credit card for it. Infiltrating a group undercover is always risky. You could be kicked off as soon as someone became suspicious. So Bill played it carefully. It's like when you're playing poker, you know, and you've got that poker face. So I had my poker face. One night, Bill Apro struck gold. He was invited to a house where some of the hackers were hanging out. 
along with the other bill. It was a risky move. The day I produced my badge, yes. So that was a, it was an interesting night, we were there, and Bill's idea, unbeknownst to me, so he asked for us to stay. And on that night, why it was interesting, Force had a new car, Bill's got the new company car, I've got the federal police car, uh, but I parked further down the street. He knew these hackers had the ability to access car registrations, check number plates and identify the owners. They checked one car. I was really hoping they don't check mine because mine would come up blank. And they said, if it comes up blank, it's definitely police. But then came the moment when you show your hand. The big reveal. I mean, I'm only one person away. So I had to make the move. I mean, if I don't make the move, it's never going to happen. Bill dropped his police badge on the coffee table in front of force. This was a turning point in the undercover investigation, and it worked. Bill somehow managed to flip Force. Force's family was also from Eastern Europe, and Bill says the cultural understanding helped. He was now hot on the heels of three of the best-known and talented hackers in Australia. Well, we found Phoenix. So I knew who Phoenix was, 100%. Now the hard part, getting evidence. Turns out that proving credit card fraud was the key to unlocking the investigation. I had some credit card numbers from the BBS, and... When the Secret Service checked, they said, well, there's only three and there's no use. We're not interested. I said, yeah, okay, I'll fix their problem up. So I went back and said, listen, um, I need some more credit cards. Not a problem. So I got, I'd probably say, close to 5,000. Phoenix and his crew were hacking massive numbers of credit cards. There was no proof that it was for personal spending. Seems they did it just to further their hacking. But it was the evidence Bill needed. So, okay, we sent it off. I tell you, it was extremely quick. We're talking, we're going to wait the following day for a response. This is within an hour. We get a response back from them. From the States. These are life cards. We have a problem. (laughs) So we used this where we requested the warrant, okay, to do the tap. Detective Superintendent Ken Hunt remembers the night they asked a judge for this warrant. There was um, Bill Apro with me. He was my computer whiz. Myself, the person from the Director of Public Prosecutions, Federal DPP, and we had written up the wording to go and get from a judge telephone taps. The three of us went around to the judge in his home and... Bill was talking in computer speak, the lawyer was talking in legal speak, and I had to try and interpret both of them to inform the judge in basic terms uh, what was happening. Now, the point was made very early in the police that the police didn't have a clue on computer crime, and in many cases that was quite right. We, We had a few people like Bill and others, but... Very, very few of us as investigators knew what to do with it, but that paled into insignificance when, you, when we were trying to explain it to a judge who probably didn't, in the 80s, probably didn't even know what a computer was. The AFP obtained warrants to intercept Phoenix's telephone service during January, February and March of 1990, approximately one year after the US had come to the AFP with their concerns, and eight months after Operation Dabble was established. Oh, we got them. We got, we got the telephone taps. 
These taps weren't enough to bring a prosecution because all they proved was they were talking. But boy, were they talking. They're talking about getting into um, NASA, Naval Research Labs, the Texas laser, and that Phoenix is going to point it to the White House, and, you know, this laser actually works. So this is the most powerful laser in the world. It was located at Texas Uni in Austin. And what was Phoenix trying to do? Point it to the White House, and he's going to start blasting the White House. Oh, he's not going to do anything, but we're talking someone down in uh, Melbourne accessing the big laser, and it's moving around. They had a problem. They, they could not control it themselves. He's controlling it. So we've got a major issue here. For an AFP officer listening in, it was extraordinary stuff. And there was more. Take this, for example. In the early morning of 22nd of February 1990, Phoenix and Electron were talking. Phoenix said... They were like, are we going to fuck NASA over now? So the whole idea of the hackers back then, they were bragging to each other to say, I could do this, I could do that. But some of the bragging, I would probably say 60%, was just rubbish. They wanted to get known. They wanted, I'm going to get a handle, I'm going to be very well known amongst the peers. And this really made my intelligence gathering very difficult. Bill had a problem. The only way to prove what was bragging and what was criminal was to capture exactly what they were doing on the computer because that was where the crime was happening. So they're they're getting, they're listening, okay? So listening, they're telephone intercepting the voice. The voice is there. They could record the voice with a phone tap. The data, however... That was much harder and had never been done before. So Bill and the Operation Dabble team had to develop a technique to capture keystrokes. Okay, now you're going into, I can talk about this for days, but I'll try and shorten this for you. It was a long process, with numerous failures along the way. They tried different speed modems, different tape machines. Bill realised they needed a direct line from Phoenix's house. A dedicated line from Melbourne all the way to where Bill was listening in Canberra, some 435 miles away. Well, I can tell you within two days we had two wires hang out the wall and that was directly onto Phoenix's residence. We got it. You're talking 700 kilometres. Two wires going directly from Phoenix's Melbourne home into one of those big reel-to-reel tape machines in Canberra. They then played the recording of data back through a fast enough modem into a computer and then onto a screen. Ken Hunt unpacked this for me. We could hear them okay, but we couldn't see what they were doing on their screens. And it wasn't until one of our people went down to Canberra and worked with them that was able to eventually capture uh, what was happening on their screen. So when they were saying, look at this, we could actually look at this and, and see what they were doing. And it was, indeed, it was the first time anywhere in the world had done this. This was a game changer. Now Bill and Ken and the Operation Dabble team were hearing and watching everything from Phoenix's phone line. This was the evidence needed for a conviction. There were a couple of prized items that the hacking community around the world really wanted, including the realm. One file in particular. Oh, Zardos was the number one win. I mean, forget Wankwormer, forget about everything else. I mean, while we were listening to them and they went in to get Zardos. The Zardos file contained insider data on computer security. It was sent to a closed mailing list of system administrators and computer security experts around the world. Well, that had everything, all the exploits. 
All the hackers wanted this right around the world. Oh, this was their number one. And they needed this. This is the holy bible of um, all the bugs and exploits. According to court documents, Phoenix, Electron and Nom had a three-man hit list. Top of that list was Spaff. Apparently you were a bit of a prize target for hackers. Do you know why? I, I think it was because at the time there were very few people who were on the defensive side who were known by name. And in part because I had made some statements about the ethical considerations of hacking. Why breaking into systems without permission was really unethical. Um, and I, I think those two things sort of painted a target on me. And as a security expert, they were sure he'd have a copy of the elusive Zardos file. So Zardos was a name that someone had given to a uh, closed mailing list. And it, it's after the rather bizarre movie that was starring Sean Connery that came out probably in the 70s. Uh, very trippy movie, very odd movie. Trippy doesn't even begin to describe it. A handsome young Sean Connery with a long single plait wearing what looks like a red leather nappy, saving the world in the year 2293. My name is Zed. For I am an exterminator. Anyway. The mailing list was of system administrators, uh, researchers, uh, law enforcement and some others, and it discussed security vulnerabilities and findings. You can see why the hackers wanted it. But to get on the list, you had to prove to the list administrator that you were a responsible individual. So many of the people who were interested in obtaining archives of the list certainly didn't fit that categorization. And so they attempted to break into systems to steal copies. The system that they got into was a decoy system I had set up that had uh, a lot of files on it to make it look like it was the real system, but also was being very heavily monitored through some hardware and software. It was, it was actually probably the first honeypot system that was actually in uh, use. So that didn't work. Turns out there were a couple of failed attempts. And to be clear, all the words from the Realm hackers we've used come from transcripts of those AFP phone taps. We've used actors to read them. In a three-way conversation on 29th of January 1990, Phoenix told Nom and Force... Electron fucked up, by the way. He didn't get Zardos. Fucked up again, young Electron. Fucked up twice in a row. Nom replied... We'll find it. Nom was right. Three days later, they got it. According to court documents, between 3.30 and 3.40am, yep, hacker hours, on the 1st of February 1990, Phoenix accessed a computer called Ditmala at the CSIRO Division of Information Technology in Carlton, just outside Melbourne, and obtained a copy of the Zardos file. CSIRO is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, Australia's peak government science body. It was also part of NASA's Deep Space Network. Just before dawn... Phoenix rang Nom. Remember you said to ring you if I got it? Uh-huh. I got it. What? Zardos. Do you proud? Have I done well? Real good. This was a big deal. The holy grail of hacking. Yes, oh, everyone. The chaos guys, I mean, they, they even bragged about this afterwards. They hey, they've got it. No one else had it. An hour later, Phoenix calls Chris Goggins, a.k.a. Eric Bloodaxe. 
He was a student at the University of Texas and a member of the infamous LOD Legion of Doom hacker group. Got it! Not only that, I've got Volume 2 as well. The first four issues of them as well. Zardos Volume 2? I got the fucker. It was the biggest cloak and dagger type hack I've ever done. It was actually a lot of fun. Eight o'clock the next morning, Phoenix calls Nom and asks him to upload a copy of Zardos to his computer. He then calls Electron. There are only four or five hackers in the world who could have done it. And that's why they should not give out Zardos to everyone. So only people who are good enough to get it would have it. Club Zardos. Only the best. Come to Club Zardos. Fuck over the US government. Phoenix then transfers a copy to Electron's computer, where it's found two months later by police. We also know the Realm hackers were in contact with a German hacker named Hans Heinrich Hubner. He was better known as Pengo from the Chaos Computer Club in Germany. This hacking group had just been involved in some serious cyber espionage. They broke into US military computers and sold information on operating systems to the KGB. One member, Karl Koch, a.k.a. Hagbard, was found burned to death in a forest in northern Germany. Karl's death was officially suicide, but many in the hacking community didn't buy it. Hacking is a career path. If I knew I could safely sell it to Russia without a problem, I'd have no hassles. Well, I might sell it to Israel, if they wanted it, but I mean, I'd have a job in espionage as a hacker. Remember... This was at the height of the Cold War, nine months before the Berlin Wall came down. It's unclear whether Phoenix or Electron knew Pengo and Hagbard were selling hacked information from United States military computers to the KGB. Nothing of this was mentioned in the AFP documents or later in court, but the Australian hackers were getting drawn into deep waters. And Pengo was in touch with Phoenix. You you proved that, did you? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, we're, we're talking, it's like having two BBSs is like having two adjoining rooms. We just walk across the other room and talk to the guys. It's that easy. And when someone says to you, oh, it didn't happen, it can't happen, <laughs> it was a joke. The Realm was also getting noticed by groups like Chaos. For example, Force had written a program called DEFCON, which analysed networks and scanned for accounts. This was discussed and indeed sought after on the German live chat channel called Eltos. They were a big influence. So uh, the Melbourne group would definitely run into them on Systems Online, would read things that they had posted on um, secret, you know, online publication sites. Uh, information sharing, and a environment where the currency was information, and information came from skill and ability. So if you had the skill to break into systems and get the good information, then you were a rich man. As well as Zardos, there was another program they were all chasing. DES, Data Encryption Standard, and the compressed version known as DESZIP. Yeah, DESZIP. Well, DESZIP was used to encrypt the password files. And like Zardos, its availability was restricted. DESZIP was described in court documents as an encryption-decryption program used by the US military. Remember, passwords were a relatively new thing, and not much importance was placed on them. I was very laxed. I mean, they were putting in their names or classic, you know, sex, okay, or porn or, you know, things like that. 
a very easy password. It's egg or car or, you know, we're talking three-letter passwords. Come on. On 20th of February 1990, Phoenix told Nom... The only thing that I'm trying to get out now is guess it. I've got to remember where I saw it and then I can go and get it because I've got the password to decrypt it. Four days later, Phoenix called Electron. Fucking hell, I want Desip real bad. Sharon Viscanis was system administrator at NASA at the time. She made a written statement as an expert witness for the AFP. Between 8.39pm and 12.43pm on the 24th of February 1990... Evan Haim accessed the NASA computer using the login account friend and attempted to copy the DESZIP file. Evan Haim, that's Phoenix. Here he is talking to Nom and American hacker Eric Bloodaxe. Got bored last night and I hacked NASA. I've got root on many a system. By root, Phoenix means access to all directories and files and the ability to change the access permission of a system to allow them or others to easily get back in any time. You could even create new accounts, usernames and passwords, the master key if you like. According to Bill Apro's intercepts, one of the reasons for getting into the NASA system was to get a copy of DESZIP. Court documents show that between 22nd and 25th of February 1990, Phoenix hacked into a NASA machine at the Langley Research Centre, Virginia, and accessed the DES file. Sharon Biscarnas' statement went on to say, As one of the consequences of Evan Haim's penetration of its various systems, the entire NASA computer system at Langley, Virginia, was disconnected from any external communication with the rest of the world for 24 hours on the 22nd of February 1990. Phoenix wasted no time in using DESZIP and boasting about his new most wanted status. Oh, he used it all right straight after. He went straight into um, uh, Berkeley. He wanted Berkeley. He went in. He ended up being the above the administrator. Feeney is back, bigger and better than ever, and wanted by two more agencies over Berkeley, FBI, and third have been called in. I told you I got root on 40 Berkeley systems last night. I got 40 password files for you. Excellent. So I'm really, really happy. Oh, Feeney, 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 most proud of you. They'll know who I am, and they'll probably know I did it, because I left in the poem that I put up on one of the Lawrence Livermore systems. I left something like... This is one system that won't rise from the ashes. (laughs) It's nice to live on the edge. Whether the realm were responsible for the wankworm, it's not known. But it does seem like something they were both capable of and interested in. Bill Aperow thinks they were partly responsible, but it's never been proven. When Bill Aperow was invited by the Secret Service to the US in 1990, the wankworm kept coming up. We, we got this question everywhere we went about wankworm. And what was the question and what was your answer? <laughs> well, I mean, officially I couldn't tell them much. Uh, we, we had a sneaky suspicion where it originated from. He thinks he knows who was at least partly responsible. Electron bragged about it in the beginning. I mean, naturally he had to be extremely quiet because if it gets associated to him... I mean, then the charges would be much higher. Did you find the code on his computer? The wankworm, the actual, we found related to it, but no code. 
This tapped phone conversation also grabbed Bill's attention. Phoenix was talking to another friend in the US, and it speaks to motivation. You know what they were offering, and I know what they were offering. They're offering 250,000 bucks or a copy of the Unix code. Rush up. His friend asked, why doesn't anyone do it? Phoenix replied, Because I don't want to get in that shit. I don't want to have a profit motive behind this. In another conversation with a computer systems administrator in the US, Phoenix said, The Americans are getting pretty damn pissed off with me because I'm doing so much and they can't do much about it. I'm getting to the point now where I can get into almost any system on the internet. I virtually raped the internet beyond belief. Of course, the first thing to start with was all the military systems. On the 2nd of April 1990, Phoenix's three-bedroom townhouse in North Caulfield was raided by the Australian Federal Police. To this affluent suburb with its quiet streets, established trees and its fair share of Melbourne's mansions, the morning raid would have come as quite a shock. I was, I was on the, the, the Phoenix raid, yeah. Detective Superintendent at the time, Ken Hunt. We'd had information from the guys themselves through their telephone taps that they knew that the police were onto them. And they had done things like, in, in Phoenix's case, he'd opened up his box on his computer and set up a hammer hanging over his hard drive. And if he, if he was raided, then he would hit the hard drive with the hammer and smash it. And so normally, normally in cases like this, you'd knock on the door three times and say, would you mind letting us in? But we didn't. We, we, this time it was, it was the, the, the hammer going through the door. And uh, at four o'clock in the morning, this is exactly what we did. And we found Phoenix. We found him still in bed, so uh, that made it easier. And we didn't find the hammer hanging over the hard drive. It was just a story I think they made up. Ken and two others went straight to his bedroom and seized a couple of computers and two modems. There were computer manuals and a book on telecommunications networks, an American telephone keypad and a copy of The Cuckoo's Egg, the preeminent book about computer hacking by Clifford Stoll, one of Phoenix's targets. And if they needed any more evidence that they had the right place, police also found a number of Phoenix comics and a City of Caulfield street sign bearing the name of course, Phoenix Street. Phoenix Street's about an hour's walk away in the neighbouring suburb. Also found on Phoenix's computer was a file called Start. It was his instructions on hacking with titles such as How to Gain Root Access, The Significance of the Password File, Unix, Once You're In, How to Stay In, by Phoenix. At the same time, officers raided the homes of Electron and Nom. The next day, at the police station, Phoenix made Detective Superintendent Ken Hunt an offer. Uh, it was during the interview, during the day, and the proposition was... Uh, he'd obviously heard of this from watching movies or, or something from America and said, look, uh, you know, I can help you uh, investigate computer crime. And uh, I looked at him and I said, uh, mate, <laughs> you... We caught you. We don't need you to help us investigate computer crime. And uh, I think that upset him a little bit too. Three members of the realm were charged under laws which had been on the books less than 12 months. It would take another three years for their cases to make their way through the courts. On a final note, and for the record, what Bill Apre says he heard about the Texas laser, well, this wasn't something Phoenix was later charged with, and it's impossible to prove now.
next time on Motherload. You've pleaded guilty to 14 counts of what might conveniently be described as hacking. That part of the act came into operation as recently as the 30th of June, 1989. With such new criminal offences, no one knew what to expect from the judge. Would they go to jail or would they go free? And there was another group watching on. The international subversives watched the Realm case very closely to understand what could be in store for them. So they, they knew that these guys were the canary in the coal mine. This group, the International Subversives, was led by Julian Assange. This is Motherlode from Ranieri & Co. Researched and written by me, Greg Muller. Executive producer, Lucy Kent. Mixing and sound design, Martin Peralta. And consulting producer is Siobhan McHugh. Thanks also in this episode to Riley Nottingham, who played Phoenix. Electron was Isaac Reed, And Nom, played by Yusuf Saudi. Leave us a review if you can. Thanks for listening. <laughs>